A subscription to the China Africa Project's email newsletter is like getting a daily China Africa intelligence briefing delivered straight to your inbox every weekday at 6 a.m. Washington time. You'll get an in-depth review of everything going on in politics, trade, tech, culture, and more. And we don't just focus only on Africa, but also the Middle East and what China's doing throughout the Global South. Try it out free for 30 days. See if you like it. After that, subscriptions are just $7 a month for teachers and students and $15 a month for everyone else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be focusing on two issues, debt and debt repayments, which is a hot topic, obviously. And then we're going to kind of dovetail into your column this week on the great power dilemmas and the great power strategies that are going underway in Africa. A key event that happened this week, Kenya's national treasury has resumed debt repayments to China after a six-month debt holiday expired uh, back in June. Now, the Kenyan government had hoped to be able to extend that moratorium for another six months. But Chinese creditors, namely the China Exim Bank, did not like that idea at all. And apparently things got so bad that Chinese creditors halted disbursements for projects that are underway right now, bringing construction in some projects to a halt in some cases. And uh, that really sent a very clear message as to what the Chinese think on this. Now, here's what we know as of right now, and we don't know a lot, but Kenya's foreign exchange reserves dropped by $249 million between July 15th and the 21st. Now, the Treasury has not explained where that money went or what accounted for the drop, but it's presumed that was the first debt payment sent to China this year. Now, for the 2021-2022 fiscal year that just got underway, Kenya is scheduled to pay China, or repay China, I should say, $1.1 billion to service its debts. Let's break that down. That's $856 million in principal payments and $227 million in interest payments. Most of that money is going to go to the China Exim Bank to repay the loans that were used to build the standard gauge railway. Now, the fact that the China Exim Bank apparently refused Kenya's request to extend the debt service moratorium through the end of the year gets right to the heart of the dispute that's raging right now between China and other members of the G20 on the debt relief issue. Back in February, Kobus, if you recall, the G20 extended its debt service suspension initiative that's known as the DSSI, and we'll talk a lot about that, all through the end of the year to give countries like Kenya just a little bit more breathing room. But China has been very selective as to how it engages with the DSSI. 
China, on the one hand, accounts for more than $2 billion of the $5.4 billion of debt relief provided under the DSSI. So almost half of all the relief comes from China. Uh, That's why China says it's playing a really important role in the initiative. And spokespeople like Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian are very defensive when they're accused that China's not doing enough. But the U.S. and others do, in fact, hurl accusation after accusation that do indeed accuse the Chinese of not including commercial loans issued by the likes of the China Development Bank and even forcing countries like Kenya to repay their debts right now in the middle of a pandemic as Kenya's economy is really not in the strongest point. So they say, Kobus, that the Chinese may be abiding by the letter of the DSSI, but not the spirit of the DSSI. And the bottom line here, Kobus, is that we've been saying for years on this show that China is playing by a very different set of rules. And what we're seeing in Kenya right now is what it looks like in practice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is this it, this raises a lot of questions about about the future of Chinese financing um, in Africa, and I think it also, as you say, it raises a lot of questions about what the DSSI was actually supposed to do. Um, you know, originally the idea was that um, was that this this kind of holiday on on repayment would allow countries to to channel um, the, the the funds they would have paid for you know to service debts into COVID nineteen mitigation. I don't know that that necessarily really ever happened with the DSSI, um, and the 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 result was also that that the debt was essentially just kicked down the road and would come due at some stage. And then you know, kind of the the, the question about when exactly it's coming due and what the rules around that is, you know, it it, it even though that the, the Chinese are looking quite bad, I think in 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 this in this in this respect, it's not clear that another version of the DSSI would necessarily have helped countries that much more substantially in the end the, the debt is just is just deferred you know kind of there's no situation where 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 countries have to actually pay less they just pay it on a different schedule that's right it didn't go to the underlying debt stock what it does is it just deferred the payment that's why it's called the debt service suspension initiative and really the chinese are just now asking for repayment four or five months before other countries in the g20 are going to expect their payments, assuming that the DSSI is not extended through next year. So let's get some perspective from Nairobi on this. And today, everybody, is a very important show for us at the China Africa Project, because the guest that we're going to have on today is not really a guest anymore. He is, in fact, now our first full-time staff member at the China Africa Project. We're very excited to welcome Dr. Cliff Mboya to the team. Cliff has been on the show previously. He's a scholar who is a graduate of Fudan University where he received his PhD. He's super knowledgeable in China-Africa affairs and China-Kenya affairs. And so a very warm China Africa Project welcome to Cliff. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Eric and Kobas. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you here on the show and great to have you part of the team. Cliff is going to be writing for us every day uh, on our newsletter, on the website. He's going to be contributing to our podcast on a regular basis. And he's also now 
going to start working on uh, these briefing papers that we're going to start, where every month we're going to do in-depth, deep dives on particular issues to help close some of that knowledge deficit that exists, especially in Africa, but also elsewhere around the world. And we're going to tap Cliff's expertise on that to issue those new briefing papers that will start coming out later this fall. Before we get started, let's just do a very quick introduction, since people may not be familiar with you, and since you are now going to be a regular feature of our show and our team, maybe you can just give a quick little introduction. Well, uh, my full names are Cliff Ocheng Boya. I'm Kenyan. And uh, I've been doing uh, journalism work and uh, research work at the same time for about 10 years now. And uh, I've been interested in China-Africa relations for a long time. And uh, I think uh, during my undergrad days, that's where uh, my interest in China-Africa began. So immediately after my graduation, I joined the Diplomatist Africa as a part-time reporter. And I also worked at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Horn of Africa section where I did uh, uh, news analysis and news reports about what was happening in the Horn region. And then because of uh, some of the work that I did there and at the diplomat, I managed to get to the Chinese embassy as an information and public affairs where I worked for for six years uh, in the information and public affairs section. And uh, with that, there was a need because uh, there was this uh, expanded uh, communication space and I was dealing with journalists and editors and I felt it important to maybe hone my skills in uh, in that area. So I joined the University of Nairobi, I did a master's in development communication and that really helped my work while still focusing on, on China-Africa. And after that, I felt that uh, a lot of uh, African issues were not getting the kind of attention they need. You know, the lack of African agency. We have these uh, Western perspectives or Chinese perspectives that are uh, dominating this uh, relationship. And I felt like uh, maybe I needed to do more research on this so that we try and amplify African voices in this relationship. So with that, that is how I ended up uh, enrolling for a PhD in China. And I graduated last year with a PhD in, inter in international politics. So since then, I've been doing China-Africa analysis as an independent uh, analyst and uh, consultant. And uh, I'm glad that I'll be able to join uh, this amazing team just to continue with the work that I've been doing, learn more from you guys, and hopefully bring new perspectives, especially the African uh, perspectives into this relationship. Yeah, we are just so excited to have you on board. Also, we have a China editor as well. We mentioned that a couple of weeks ago in the show. So we now have these perspectives that Cliff is talking about from the impacted region. So we have a full-time China editor. Uh, we're keeping their name anonymous because of the fear of public outrage and being doxxed. And so they're not afraid of any government response. They're concerned about the kind of the trolls online. And that is a real concern. But uh, fortunately, that's not an issue for Cliff. But this is the kind of material that's now going into our daily content production. So Cliff, our China editor, Kobus, and, uh, and a little bit from me as well sprinkled in there. So let's get back to our discussion about Kenya. 
Cliff, we're going to start with you. It was a very big week in Kenya. The debt repayments have resumed again. It looks like the the Kenyans did try to buy a little bit of extra time. The Chinese said, uh-uh, we're not going to do it with that. What's the reaction right now in Nairobi? How are people treating this, this, this fact that in the middle of the pandemic, as the economy is faltering at the same time now, the debts are being repaid? Well, uh, I believe there's a lot of anxiety, especially from the Kenyan public. And uh, I've tried to score the uh, social media because Kenyans are very active on social media and they are not afraid to express their opinions. But uh, I noticed uh, this week and in recent weeks, there have been a lot of outrage about, uh, you know, the president re- uh, recently, the budget was announced and there was taxation on essential goods. Life is getting very expensive. So I think there's a lot of anxiety of what this means to the to the local economy because uh, things are already very difficult for majority of Kenyans and Kenya having to start to pay these debts, then it means that uh, it will not get any better anytime soon. So we're just crossing our fingers and hoping that uh, this will not uh, uh, sink us uh, even more into uh, this uh, debt distress that we are going through at the moment. Kobus, it does seem a little bit, I don't know, I'm going to put this kind of in, you know, in politically incorrect, but it does seem kind of like an asshole move right now to start forcing the Kenyans to repay the debts now when in fact there is a vehicle like the DSSI And given the fact that the Kenyan economy is in difficult straits, we talk about inflation. We'll get to inflation and why. There's some very interesting China-related causes to inflation. But it just seems tone-deaf to me, Kobus, that the the Chinese would insist on repayment now. I wonder how much it has to do with with domestic objects within China. You know, that there's so much much kind of um, issues around, you know, I I think kind of concern about Chinese exposure to to financing in in the global south. So I was wondering whether this was a gesture, uh, you know, kind of aimed at the domestic audiences in China to send a signal that, look, we, you know, kind of, we're not just throwing away money, um, you know, kind of overseas. We're demanding payment, repayment to our loans um, at a moment when there's also a lot of a lot of discussion about a possible slide in the Chinese economy. Do you think that might be a factor there? That sounds plausible, and it's the very question that I put to our China editor to ask if they would look for any responses to that, and the Chinese media is not covering it. So again, they're not under the same public pressure that they would be if they were in Europe or the United States to send that kind of message to their publics. Uh, as far as we can see on social media and in the mainstream press, there's no discussion right now of these of these loans. And, and I don't think it's for any sensitive political reason. I just don't think people care. I, I just don't think it's that big of an issue right now. Uh, so that would be my guess on it. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure that the Chinese are doing it for that. I think that my personal guess is that the China Exim Bank wants their money back. And this has always been the key point. People have been going on for years about debt trap, debt trap, debt trap, seizing the port of Mombasa, taking over Nigeria, all of the fantasies that we've been hearing for years, when in fact, the only thing that the Chinese creditors have had their eyes on is getting repaid with interest. And Cliff, right here, should go a long way to dispel the ideas that the port of Mombasa is, you know, in jeopardy or whatnot. You know, and it should go a long way to dispelling the idea that the debt trap is driving them or predatory lending, as we've heard, when in fact, really what they want, this was a business transaction. They lent you money, they want their money back, and they want their money back with interest, and they want it now, because that's what you've agreed to. 
And I think that's important because uh, as an African, I think we need to emphasize more on the responsibility of uh, our leaders. And I liked uh, the statement. And in fact, I didn't expect this because just last week, you know, the ministers and some of our uh, government officials, they were denying that they were seeking debt extension, stating that they will not seek suspension for the reasons that uh, it will safeguard our sovereign ratings and future access to this financial market. So that was quite reasonable. And, and uh, we understand the economic situation at the moment, but I think to some extent it is in our interest also to pay these uh, debts in time because, you know, once you borrow, then you have a responsibility to pay. So we have to look at uh, it both ways. And Cliff, do you think that there is there any kind of appetite among like ordinary citizens in Kenya for in, any additional lending? Um, you know, or, or is is the very idea of 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 any of particularly kind of infrastructure lending just kind of toxic at the moment after the standard gauge railway and the other scandals? I think uh, at the people's level, at ordinary levels, uh, people are uh, there's the, these uh, negative sentiments against debts in general. Remember the outrage when IMF decided to offer some loans. Uh, to Kenya, there was a lot of outrage online because people are just saying our president is too much, is taking too much money that we cannot be able to pay, and uh, it's Kenyans that will pay. Kenyans are generally concerned about that. But then, if you look at what the analysts are saying and some professionals, and if you do a thorough analysis, sometimes uh, when you get into this economic hard time, sometimes it's necessary to borrow just to manage the situation. So long as you do it responsibly and uh, you invest the money, Wisely, then you can be able, the money can uh, facilitate uh, uh, improvements and help the economic situation for you to be able to come out of it and do uh, something better. So uh, generally for the general population, it's a bit uh, complicated. But then personally, I think it's the right thing to do because uh, the situation is not uh, very rosy at the moment. I mean, that's the difficult trade-off, and it's a conversation that we've been having over the past couple of years, specifically around Kenya, which is whether to make the investments in those heavy infrastructure projects like the Standard Gauge Railway or the port at Lamu, which have cost a lot of money. That being said, let's take into account that debt servicing costs are projected to grow 35% in the 2021-2022 Uh, fiscal year. And that means that more money being paid to repay debts is less money for public health and for social services, for education, housing, uh, to deal with urbanization and all these critical issues that are facing uh, countries like Kenya. We featured a soundbite in uh, our show from two weeks ago from David Ndi, who is a very well-known Kenyan scholar, and he's been a very vocal critic of the Kenyatta administration's heavy borrowing from China to build these, what he calls these white elephant infrastructure projects. What's your take on the debate guts in Kenya right now as to whether or not it makes sense to invest so much money into these big infrastructure projects rather into what David and Dee says Kenyans should be doing, which is investing in human capacity development, education, housing, agriculture, small businesses, and things like that. You know, this is one area that I've done uh, some research on in terms of uh, the balance uh, of uh, interest between China and Africa. And uh, my my position is that uh, it's basically a balance. You know, you cannot invest in uh, education, 
and health and not invest in, a, in, in infrastructure and to build roads and schools and things like that. So it's a delicate balance. So I think our policymakers just need to find a, a working balance. I think our policymakers and our leaders have emphasized so much on the infrastructure part. And this is probably because... Uh, maybe Western countries and aid from other countries has focused on these sectors. And uh, because China is giving more and China prefers this hard infrastructure program that people can see and feel, then there's this tendency to a feeling that uh, uh, so much is being directed to, into that area. But then, you know, some of these hard infrastructure sectors translate into the other Soft issue, when you have good roads, that means you can access health uh, uh, efficiently. It means uh, maybe the country becomes more productive because you don't waste a lot of time on the road. You know, traffic in this country can be very crazy, you know, and it wastes a lot of money. So it's a delicate balance. I'm not sure if it's uh, right to take a, a, an extreme position. And I think uh, as much as I respect uh, David D is a top economist and his views, but I think sometimes he's a, he gets a, a bit too political. And uh, Kobus, what's your take on that debate between whether or not these big infrastructure projects make sense or what David and D says in terms of that human capacity development? Well, you know, that that's a, it's a debate that, that also lies at the heart of, of Western versus Chinese ideas about development at the moment. Um, because, you know, China obviously has, its development tra- trajectory is very closely linked to hard infrastructure and particularly also to debt, you know, finance hard infrastructure. Whereas in, you know, the Western countries have, have over the last few decades have really emphasized a lot of, of kind of social mobility social development uh, focusing on health on gender equity on on uh, you know kind of freedom of speech and uh, you know so civil society development as 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 drivers of development it seems to me and you know kind of I'm not an economist but it does seem to me that you kind of need both you know it's they they like in a perfect world they would the two would kind of focus or will Built on each other, but it you know de- depending on like deciding on where where to channel the funds of, is, is of course a, a really big issue. Um, so you know I, I think it'll be very interesting to see to, to compare these kind of different different development outcomes. But the thing is is that in a lot of African countries, so much of of the the kind of soft infrastructure that that underlies development is also underlain by by hard infrastructure you know if you like as cliff said if you can't get somewhere then you can't access the health system um you know and 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 a lot of what china is also funding is is lies actually in the middle of that in the sense that it's not necessarily just bridges and ports but it's also things like like data networks um you know kind of that that end up the sure like it you know kind of it's a form of hard infrastructure but but its effect ends up boosting things like civil society depending on your society so you know, so 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 in that sense, it's it's a kind of very complicated line to walk. Um, but I think the thing that that you, that you're not going to get away from is, is all of this stuff, soft and hard infrastructure. They all cost money, um, and you know, so 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 budgeting is is the really big issue. Okay, let's broaden out the issue a little bit here. One of the issues that is also confronting the Kenyan economy today is inflation, and this is a big problem. And actually, China. Uh, is playing a big part in Kenya's inflation. There are two big factors to take into account here. One is that China-European trade has been rebounding solidly, and that's led to container vessels and the ships actually being sucked up to go to fuel that trade. 
So there are fewer ships that are coming to port in Mombasa and in the port of Lamu, bringing fewer goods in. Fewer goods means higher cost on those goods. The second problem that also relates to China is a chronic shortage of those container boxes that go on the ships. Those are still kind of messed up in terms of the supply from last year's pandemic and the shutdown. Too many are in the wrong places. So shippers now can't get their goods out to market, even if there is a vessel. And what that's had is a tremendous impact on Kenyan exports, where you have a lot of fresh foods and flowers and other things that are sitting at the port, but have no ship, no vessel, and no container to actually make it to China or make it to the markets they're going to. Then here's the other part of all this. The fact that fewer goods are coming into the port of Mombasa means there's less freight on the standard gauge railway. That creates a second problem because if when there's less freight on the railway, that means fewer fees being generated that are used to pay back the loans. And so we have this vicious cycle that the freight on the railway and the passage and traffic on the railway are all tied into the loan issue that Kenya now is under pressure to repay. Cliff, pick up the story from all of that that I've put out there. It seems like China is central in so many different aspects of what's going on in Kenya today regarding the economy. Well, uh, it, it's an interesting fact, you know. <laughs> you know, when you combine... You, and you know, that is why the debt trap uh, narrative <laughs> will never go away. I'm not, I'm not saying... I'm not justifying it. I think it has been de debunked before, but I think... Uh, both African countries, Kenya and even China are coming to the realization that uh, debt is a big issue that needs to be addressed. Otherwise, uh, it might even affect uh, our relationship uh, uh, going forward. And, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, the fact that uh, the SGR is, uh, is making losses. And uh, this scenario is not limited to Kenya. You know, I, I just have been reading that the Djibouti-Ethiopia railway has been closed for a week. And I hope that won't happen in Nairobi because uh, uh, it will be a disaster. But then you see such dynamics, you know, it raises a lot of questions, you know. I know people are saying that uh, COVID has had an impact of this, but then we had these issues even before COVID. So we think we should focus on how do we get out of this? And I think one of the ways was maybe to defer or extend uh, the payment periods, which is not happening. So I think either way, Kenya is on the losing end. We just need to tighten our belts and find a way of managing this situation going forward. And about the containers, you know, I noticed something very interesting. I haven't done uh, research on it. It's something that I need to go and look at, you know. A lot of containers are coming from Mombasa to the uh, hinterland, but then very few containers are going back and i have noticed a lot of these containers being sold you know people are bringing up shops and uh, you know all kinds of <laughs> I mean, that's only adding to the problem that there's fewer containers now that be for oh my goodness yeah so i've just been thinking could this be the same containers that need to be going back to mombasa and uh, helping the situation there because you know there's just a sudden uptick of so many of these containers along the roads you know, they modify them into houses and uh, business centers and things like that. And I've just been thinking this could be part of the problem. So you could see the kind of uh, complications that uh, we are dealing with as a country. And I think uh, our policymakers need to sit down seriously and uh, think about how 
Kenya will get out of this situation because it is a matter of concern and it's gaining traction because you know most of these debates are at high level and government level but I think because of the high standards of living and the frustrations from Kenyans it is generating a lot of uh, debate and uh, uh, I hope it doesn't lead to things like protests and things like that but uh, people are paying attention to this kind of issues at the moment. Well, it's been a very bad week for African logistics. Uh, Cliff mentioned that the Ethiopia-Djibouti railway has been down uh, for at least, for now, going into its second week. And as far as we know, at the time of this recording, it is still down. Uh, Anti-war protesters have blocked the line and destroyed part of the line, uh, protesting against the war in Tigray. At the same time, Cobus, down in your neighborhood, the port of Durban has been uh, off and on. It was hit by a cyber attack, and prior to that, it was shut down due to the protests and the riots that occurred. So it's had to declare force majeure twice in the month of July. That slows exports coming out of the Democratic Republic of Congo going to, where else? China. So again, I think we're seeing, Kobus, is that as instability rises, social, economic, political, it's going to have a direct impact on other countries like China that depend on these supply chains. Yes, and and also the, you know, like everyone knows that, including protesters, of course, you know. So so you know, it's it's a it's a common tactic, as you said, you know, kind of supp- disrupting supply lines is is a way to get attention, you know, in in from the government, and we've, we've, we 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 see that in in Ethiopia, um, we you know, kind of we, we we also saw it in Durban a few weeks ago um, when protesters at that stage uh, blocked the highway, the N three highway that goes from Johannesburg to Durban, um, and in in then in effect, you know, essentially blocked entire continental supply chains, including as you mentioned the cobalt supply chain that goes to China. So, you know, kind of protesters know what they're doing. Um, and they, you know, so it's it's a way of, of, of kind of holding the government to ransom. Um, and, you know, that's not going to go away. I think it's, it's a well-seasoned tactic. Yeah. And the transnet cyber attack also shows the vulnerabilities that a lot of African stakeholders are going to have in this new world where ransomware is a reality. And the fact that they're not as fortified, maybe, as, uh, you know, ports in other countries. And let's be honest here, the United States isn't really doing a very good job in the ransomware business after all anyway. So it's not like it's that much better. But it is a new reality in how fragile we are. Kobus, today you uh, wrote a column which is, to the best of my knowledge right now, I'm looking at Twitter, uh, really taking off. People are really responding well to it. The, the quote that I put on Twitter, and I'd like you to dive into it because it's going to segue into our, our, our second topic here. The problem with the Cold War narrative between the United States and China is it flattens the complex compromises African leaders have to make to meet development goals as financing options keep shrinking. It also creates echo chambers in Washington, Beijing, and Brussels that make it impossible to discuss African realities. That echoes a lot of what Cliff was talking about in terms of agency. You mentioned the compromises. Let's talk about that in the context of these Kenyan debt repayments and give us a sense of how that plays into the broader U.S.-China struggle that we're seeing play out. Well, you know, the, this a lot of the discussion um, that that we've that we've seen coming out of frequently out of Western capitals, um, you know, have have treated the things like China providing infrastructure um, as this kind of encroachment of China, of you know Chinese power. Um, 
in in the world not questioning why global south governments want to to work with china um and particularly not not questioning like very pointedly not questioning the the i think what i think is is a, is a big reality is that uh, like it's frequently one of the big reasons uh, for for working with china like as you know as seen from global south capitals is the experience of having worked with western western partners before you know it's, it's those two aren't those two aren't separate you know kind of they you, the, the experience of 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 some of the frustrations of working with with financiers like the world bank for example d- immediately feed into the the choice to to work with china um and and in the process like you know frequently people would ne- wouldn't would work with china even though they have misgivings like around the, de- the kind of some of the complications around chinese debt as we've seen in in zambia last year for example and now in kenya but they do it anyway because they don't have any other options um and you know and and they kind of they're on the hook to their populations who are very young and who are demanding jobs and development you know kind of as as, as all populations do so you know kind of the the, the so the, the kind of narrative where we see um you know kind of us and european stakeholders talking about this kind of chinese infrastructure provision as if it's some kind of plot um or just simply as this kind of like you know kind of malign thing that has to be resisted even though it's it's frequently not it, very these kind of west same western countries don't offer any real concrete alternatives makes for this kind of situation where they're only really speaking to themselves you know it's it's, it's this kind of echo chamber where it really is only about the relationship between the west and china and africa is this kind of convenient kind of hinterland a kind of blank screen on which you can kind of project whatever you want and you know kind of the that combined with the the how disempowered african politicians and leaders are in in the international community means that they never get to answer back you know so so it becomes this kind of like like a monologue pretending to be a dialogue you know um which i think ends up being incredibly hurtful and like harmful to to the entire global south Let's take a listen to what that monologue actually sounds like. And just last week in Washington, D.C., the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa and Global Health Policy held a hearing on U.S. trade and investment in Africa. Now, nominally a hearing about U.S. trade and investment in Africa, you would think would focus on U.S. trade and investment in Africa. But this being Washington in 2021, China was a prominent theme in that discussion. And there was one exchange in particular that was especially interesting, and it goes to almost everything that Kobus was talking about just now and in his column, and very germane to our discussion today about Chinese loans in Kenya. You'll first hear the question from Senator Dan Young. He is a Republican from Indiana. And then you'll hear the answer from our good friend, Aubrey Ruby, who is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Think Tank. We've seen how Chinese aid, investment, and trade in the region have grown in the past decade. But these large numbers often overinflate the value of China's engagement and mask the true costs uh, that uh, various countries face. A recent report by Aid Data shows that African countries that borrow from the PRC have had to sign confidentiality clauses, set up offshore revenue accounts, and agree to many burdensome conditions. Um, to put it indelicately, you might say China sometimes acts like a loan shark rather than a true partner of, of various countries. 
This is all the more apparent now as countries struggle to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and communist China continues to balk at participating fully in debt relief measures. Now, with that said, I don't doubt that PRC resources can do some good and are doing some good in the region. So I, I would just like to hear from our witnesses what your assessment is uh, of, of how on balance the effect of, of Chinese official lending in the region um, uh, is, is impacting uh, the region, actually promoting development and sustainable infrastructure. And if you could touch on um, how countries are responding to Chinese assistance now that some of the true costs of these arrangements are coming to light. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm happy to, to start. Um, so I would think uh, this speaks to another question we had earlier about uh, infrastructure and the need that is dire on the continent to fill an infrastructure financing gap. Many African countries are looking at financing solutions from China because they have not many other options that make sense in a political timeline that you all understand and we understand here in Washington. You get elected, you need to bring power and roads and rail to the people, and you don't have time to wait eight years for long-term processes by multinational multi, uh, institutions. So uh, China brings a fast solution to that. Um, but African partners are not naive in that process. They understand that there are trade-offs to be made, and often they come to that because there are not many alternatives. Uh, you had asked earlier, Senator, where were American companies uh, on infrastructure? And I think outside of the digital space, most of them are missing. They're not there, right? If you look at the largest EPCs, uh, engineering, procurement, and construction companies in the world, the top 10, of the top 10, seven are Chinese, we do not, I mean, there are the Bechtels every once in a while. There are, there are a few, but we're not, we're not rapidly looking for these type of opportunities to build uh, transport infrastructure on the continent. And so I think we have to look at areas where we are. Look at what Google and Facebook are building when it comes to undersea broadband cables. Mm -hmm. Look at the potential, the transformative potential of, of SpaceX's Starlink, which could do last mile internet at a way that completely leaps over the Huawei and ZTE built 2G, 3G infrastructure. It's going to be direct from satellite. So I think we have to look at those opportunities. And I think to, to the senator's um, question about an assessment, an honest assessment, listen, those roads that are built by Chinese companies, sometimes they carry Coca-Cola. And sometimes they carry P&G products and they allow people to get to clinics faster and they allow people to go to school. So those, those roads and, and transport infrastructure has a positive impact. The question is, is the debt worth it? Is the debt worth it at the terms that it's being given? And is it being used to actually be efficient in terms of generating growth? So debt is not a problem in and of itself. Bad debt is taken on when you can't afford it and when it's used for the wrong ways. So I think we have to break down the issue of indebtedness in African markets. And look, many, many African countries are not even at their limits in terms of the GDP debt ratio. So we're talking about specific countries. Zambia is obviously one uh, where indebtedness is an issue. But not all African countries are in that boat. And I think we always have to be aware of averages, right? The average African country is the size of Montana. But talking about it that way doesn't make sense when you have a Nigeria that's 200 million person versus a Namibia, which is 2 million, 
right? Averages are a challenge and regional kind of generalizations can be a challenge as well. So I think the Chinese footprint in African markets when it comes to infrastructure is a mixed bag. Um, but it is, is gotten better over time. You do not see the crazy projects that you saw of the kind of white elephant and the, 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 um, stadiums that we saw 10, 15 years ago. It's made a march towards the market. So and could there. I follow up with you, uh, briefly? I, I, I'm grateful for your response there, for your fulsome response. Do we see multinationals, uh, the IMF comes to mind, maybe the World Bank, uh, bringing more transparency to the terms or encouraging these countries um, uh, to learn from lessons that the multinational institutions uh, have learned. I'm not suggesting that all the countries or leaders are unsophisticated, but um, sometimes uh, they're, they're new to these arrangements. So um, have, have multinational institutions been helpful in improving the terms that we're seeing uh, across the continent of Africa as it relates to infrastructure investment from uh, communist China? They certainly, those institutions certainly bring with them high levels of, you know, ESG standards. So environmental, social, governmental, community engagement, conversations that are need to be had to ensure that a infrastructure project has long-term sustainability. But those processes have a downside. We understand that. The more you inject consultation and transparency in something, sometimes it takes longer. You know how that is in the Senate. Think about when you try to go to a dinner and you have to show that it's less than $35 or whatever the limit is because there's rules and things take time. So when countries are look for fast mobilization of resources when it comes to infrastructure, they look to entities and, and partners like China, like Turkey. China's not the only one that can move quickly on infrastructure. So I do think it's um, a, a situation whereby they do bring higher standards, but sometimes those standards take longer to uh, implement the projects. Thank you. Kobus, I do not know how Aubrey did it, but in five minutes, she basically consolidated an entire year of our episodes and our show. There is so much to unpack there. Give us some of your reactions. Yeah, no, I think she, you know, she she's spot on. Like, I completely agree with her. Like the these, uh, you know, the the these processes um, are are important. It is important to 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 be transparent. Um, and I think there is some legitimate crit- criticism to you know kind of to to aim at some Chinese projects on on those terms. But those aren't the only terms going, you know, kind of there's also, for example, the criteria of whether it, it the infrastructure creates economic growth or whether it helps a particular community to get from A to B. And, you know, kind of against the against the background of the, you know, like what we see, if you look at the long history of, of an institution like the World Bank, for example, the, the they, there's these kind of intellectual fashions, you know, kind of with, with within these institutions. And so kind of, they, they and they they learn from their own history. So they had uh, you know kind of several decades ago they, there was kind of problematic world bank, large scale World Bank infrastructure investment, and then the World Bank kind of moved away from that. And then for several decades it became really difficult to 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 fund something like a dam, for example, um, or a rail line. And you so so and and those changes happen 
in you know in places like Washington, they 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 don't happen in in direct consultation with with African leaders frequently. It's not a situation of of um you know kind of what do you guys need? How can we kind of how can we bring that together with with the way that we do business? These you know these institutions make decisions, and then the, it's like the kind of season changes, and then certain things that used to be possible are not possible anymore. Um, you know, and and. So well, what you then see is that is that these leaders then have to adapt and work with other people because certain things are just not happening on you know kind of via those traditional partners. So uh, you know, kind of for me, there's like a big gap in the discussion there about how how these kind of traditional partners actually work together. But no one wants to really have that discussion because they're so focused on trying to prove that China is a bad guy. Yeah. Cliff, give us your reaction to one or two points that you heard in Aubrey's testimony before the Senate last week. Well, I think she's uh, spot on and I agree with uh, what she's saying because uh, and I think the fundamental question is uh, when it comes to death, is, uh, is it worth it, you know? And for me, I think it is worth it because, as Koba said, first of all, we have no alternatives. It is a fact that Africa needs infrastructure. We have a very big infrastructure gap. So we either get it from China or from someone else, you know. So uh, it is something that we need. So And debt isn't necessarily bad, you know. So we all take debts even at our personal levels. The thing is... What are we doing with the debt, you know? And then if you look at the narrative, it has focused on maybe like the Kenyan case, the SGR. You know, most critics say it is making losses. It is uh, not generating enough money to help pay the loans. And, you know, most times when I argue with my friends when it comes to China, Africa, I tell them just try and balance and look at uh, this from different perspectives. And one perspective is that not all infrastructure projects are meant to generate money for the government. You know, governments are not supposed to build dams so that they sell water to their citizens. You don't build roads so that you charge your citizens to use those roads. You know, they're supposed, some of them are supposed to maybe catalyze economic activity and improve the lives of those people. So I think because of the competition, these narratives sometimes focus on the negative issues and then we tend to overlook uh, some of the motivations behind uh, this project. So as a Kenyan, as an African, I think we should uh, focus more on uh, what these projects are actually doing. I know that uh, there are aspects to do with uh, corruption and looting uh, with some of these funds, and I think uh, those can be improved, but that does not mean we do away with this kind of infrastructure projects. And uh, I welcome, you know, instead of criticizing these activities, I think uh, China's competitors should try and find areas where they can come in and do a much better a job so that people are able to compare and actually see that uh, there are better ways of doing it rather than just criticizing them with no alternative. I think that is kind of the point is that they don't really want to you know they don't really have the money or they don't really want to to kind of to to muster that kind of level of funds. And they don't have the capacity to do it. I mean, the U.S. is a high-tech services economy. Yeah, and and also I think that like these institutions, like you know, kind of like the World Bank, for example, not not to particularly blame them, but like I don't think these institutions necessarily want to change the way they do business. Um, they just have a problem with the landscape shifting, and they they you know kind of and and something that they that they I think are you know accustomed to, which is having you know kind of seeing Africa as this kind of relatively 
stable backyard, you know, kind of where everything is mappable and predictable, they, they don't like that changing, you know, kind of. So, so a lot of it has to do, I think, simply with, you know, kind of with, with the kind of weight of Western power in the world. Um, and the fact that the fact that China is kind of is, you know, is chipping away at that um, and is, 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 and is giving kind of other options to, to the global South. I think that itself is, is kind of part of why these countries are so hyped up about these issues. Cliff, one of the issues that Senator Young brought up was the lack of transparency in Chinese loans. And this has been one of my pet peeves. And you like to focus a lot on the question of African agency. And African agency is a door that swings both ways. It can be a positive thing where countries are asserting agency in order to gain more control of their future. But it also is a vehicle to hold African governments accountable. As far as I know, there is nothing that stops the Kenyan parliament from passing a law that says all loan contracts with foreign governments and policy banks must be made public and transparent. And then China, by virtue of its non-interference doctrine, would be obligated to respect that. In fact, in many of the aid data loan contracts that we looked at and that the folks at the Keele Institute, Aid Data and Center for Global Development also looked at, there was clauses in there that said the Chinese would respect national laws. So if the Kenyan parliament passed it, and said, we must publicize this, kind of like what Cameroon's done to some extent, they would do it. So really, at the end of the day, a lot of this question of transparency falls on your government's shoulders. And the fact that your government's shoulders have not taken on the responsibility over the past 10 or 15 years from extracting more concessions out of the Chinese. You and I both know, as students of Chinese history, that one of the things that the Chinese have done exceptionally well over the past 30 to 40 years is they required foreign companies coming into China. When China was weak, they did this. When they were poor and backwards and had no money, they forced companies into joint ventures, they forced companies into technology transfers, and they said, if you wanna be here, you gotta play by our rules. African governments haven't asserted that form of agency in their relationship with the Chinese. Now we're in a situation where the Chinese are saying, you know what? We're getting bored of investing money and loaning money to Africa and building big infrastructure projects. We're leaving. And so what ends up happening is that the capacity development is not there. Talk to us about the role of agency in terms of holding your government accountable for the mistakes that it's made and its responsibility in all of this, rather than hearing what Senator Young says and blaming everything on the Chinese. Yeah, I've, I've not been a supporter of uh, this blame game towards uh, China, like China is doing this, the dead trap narrative and everything, because we go into this relationship willingly and people actually sit down and discuss and negotiate these deals. And uh, for some time, I'll be, you know, and uh, I don't know why this is not uh, really gaining traction. I think also the political climate and things like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of researchers are looking at some of the impacts of uh, this relationship because, you know, there's the Chinese political system and the Western political system. And uh, both of them have uh, pros and cons. And uh, Africa sometimes seems to be torn between uh, these two these two systems but ideally if you want to talk about things to do with transparency and accountability these are things that actually exist in the Kenyan constitution you know you know the SGR was very controversial in the beginning you know legislators were up in arms against uh, some of the ways in which these projects are being implemented there was a lot of law breaking in terms of uh, procurement and things like that uh, but then 
you know, it's just a political problem. You know, some of the, we, the laws exist, some, some of them are not being followed. Uh, it's just a disregard for, you know, it's just impunity at the political level. And then, you know, this brings in the factor of uh, corruption and looting of some of these funds. So I think uh, the responsibility at the end of the day lies uh, with the citizenry and our political leaders. And I know it's very easy to say to hold your leaders accountable, but then, you know, sometimes when the system becomes a bit more restrictive and uh, with authoritarian tendencies, sometimes it becomes very difficult to do that. And you remember when you had a very strong opposition, you know, there was a, there was a very lively debate on uh, the relationship between uh, China and Kenya, but then since our opposition leader shook hands with the president and uh, everyone now is singing the government's uh, tune, I know our VP is now on the other side, but then he's not too vocal on the issues to do with HGR. So I think it is a, it is a matter of concern and that is where our major weakness lies. And I think at the end of the day, it, it, it goes down to corruption because why would we want, why would we not want to hold China responsible maybe, or no, not China really, but really our leaders responsible for some of these problems because, you know, it is impacting everyone's, uh, everyone's lives. Uh, to some extent. So I think uh, that is our major weaknesses when it comes to this kind of uh, deals. Kobus, I'm going to give the last word to you. If Cliff is right and that it comes down to your leaders in South Africa, in Kenya, across the continent and governance, you know, I'm not entirely sure there's a lot to be hopeful for. You've seen in South Africa just in the past six, seven weeks, a near breakdown in law and order. And we're seeing other places facing similar strains on the continent. Help us kind of weave this tapestry together, all the different issues that we've talked about, and, and kind of leave us with at least some kind of themes that, you, that you're thinking about in terms of all this kind of these issues. You know, these, these issues are, are really difficult. Um, and... You know, a lot of has to do with with the with the quality of leadership in Africa, and then also with political processes in Africa. But I think there's also there's a lot of of of, of reason for hope there too, um, because you know Africa has gone through really really bad times, um, and a lot of a lot of what we're seeing, a lot of what manifests as as kind of chaos or protests or, or kind of the different different constituencies kind of fighting the government is also a kind of a examples of you know of popular governance structures that that are that are that are kind of running in 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 Africa so for example the um you know the last, a few weeks ago the South Africa was really in chaos um and you know there, there were there were these protests um by by supporters of the previous president um and uh, like really a lot of looting like a real real like value destruction like like the South African economy I think will take a a long term kind of knock from those process protests however uh, what we also saw was that that communities were themselves blocking the looting as well. They were they were kind of like they were they they kind of galvanized themselves and and were guarding some of these 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 kind of infrastructure points, um, like shopping centers, for example, roads and so on, um, from being destroyed. So it's always a really complicated kind of mixed bag. Um, and the only the only way to really kind of 
get the best from from these protests, or not from the protests, but to get the best from these these kind of governance structures, is by full community engagement, like real full kind of um, you know. Um, cooperation between between citizens and the government and this is difficult in in all countries it's you know it's it's difficult even in, in places like the US you know kind of where where there's a big trust gap between citizens and the government frequently um particularly on the right um and and where where you know kind of even there where where there's all of these resources it's still hard to 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 make that work so it's it's hard in Africa but it's but there's also a lot on the ground that i think that that is really really inspiring and really important and that i think that that you know kind of we need to focus on more um because that is actually where a lot of the real kind of development action lies i am so relieved that you are leaving us on a positive note and that we're not walking away <laughs> depressed from this conversation that there is actually some hope so uh Gentlemen, thank you so much. This is the new China Africa project team. We are so thrilled to have Cliff on board. Uh, Cliff, since you're new to the group and people may not be following you on Twitter, where can they find you on Twitter? Well, uh, my Twitter is uh, C4 Mboya and uh, with my name's uh, Cliff Mboya. Okay, we will put that in the show notes. More importantly, if you want to follow the work that Cliff is going to be doing every day for the China Africa Project. You need to go out and subscribe and support the work that all of us are doing. Again, we're a team of four now in China, in Africa, and we have some exciting plans for next year. Also, check out our homepage. We've just redesigned our homepage to include news now from the Americas, Latin America, the Middle East, and Africa, of course, as well. And we have a whole new section called The Voice from China, and this the I think it's the China perspective or the China voice, something like that. I just named it. I forgot what it actually is. But this is the work that our China editor is doing every day in finding research materials, think tank reports, all this good stuff that's none of this BS that we see on Xinhua or China Daily and the propaganda stuff. We're talking about the discussions that are going on in China among Chinese that we on the outside don't get privy to. That's all also available to subscribers as well. So we've got some amazing content now with this great team, and we would love for you to be a part of what we're doubling Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. It's only $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. We really appreciate your support, but more importantly, you will benefit from the insights of these amazing experts that we've now got on the team. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. We'll be back again next week with another episode. For Gobus van Staden and Cliff Mboya, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. continues online head over to facebook.com slash china africa project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow the guys on twitter eric's at yolanda and you can find kobas at stadenesk for more information about the china africa project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief go to chinaafricaproject.com <laughs>